Welcome to Four Speed Ahead. I'm Craig Fuller here with a very special guest, someone I've literally known my whole life, my brother, Eric Fuller, the CEO and president of US Express. Eric, welcome to Fuller Speed Ahead. This is Fuller Speed Squared. How you doing, man? Yeah, doing good. Thanks for having me. How is uh, life in COVID uh, world for you? It's crazy. I mean, I don't think we would have ever anticipated anything like this. But uh, the, the good thing was we had, as a company, we had laid the infrastructure about 12 months prior um, from a digitization standpoint. So we were able to make the transition relatively quick. We went from uh, starting a task force on how we were going to react to COVID to being fully operating from our homes. Uh, we had 1,400 people operating from their houses. We did it all within two weeks, and wow. the, the, we had laid that infrastructure prior, and that really helped us. Now, did you guys make the conversion to the cloud for your, your infrastructure, technology infrastructure, or is it predominantly AS400 Yeah, it's still, we're still not, we have some components in the cloud, but for the most part, we're still operating. So um, on being the remote system. and having that in an AS400 environment, is that more difficult than no. some of the digital No, startups? it hasn't been. No, we've, we've, it's really been seamless, and we haven't really had any issues. You're, you took over the role from dad, mm -hmm. Max Fuller, the founder, co-founder of US Express. What has that life been like? You know, I mean, in, in a family uh, operation like that, it's always, it's always interesting, and there's always different dynamics. I mean, obviously, he's, he's the executive chairman. He's still involved um, in the company, and so there's always that dynamic that plays out. But, I, I, you know, he was real intentional about when I took the role about um, kind of laying out the expectations, which was to prepare the company to, to move into kind of the next phase of where we wanted to take the company, which was, you know, focused around profitability and growth. And, um, you know, we, it, the company was really in a transition. If you think about it, the company was highly entrepreneurial, growth oriented, in some ways, maybe even grow at all costs. And so we were, we were trying to pivot to what, you know, you would call kind of a little bit more of a maturely managed organization and one that was a, a lot more intentional about how they did things. And so as we came in, as myself and our CFO both came into our role, it was really about how do we pivot this organization to one that is much more metric driven, you know, data oriented, really focused on processes and workflow. And we wanted a management team that we could bring in that was our management team that, uh, that was built out that way, that, that knew how to manage in that manner. And, uh, and that's really been what we've been working on over the last couple of years. Is it difficult taking over from a founder? Oh, absolutely. What's the, I mean, what are the challenges? Well, I mean, you, you think about it when you have a founder and whether it's family or not, I mean, that's their baby, right? I mean, it, it's, uh, it, it's a different dynamic than if I were to replace uh, some uh, a CEO who'd been in that role for 5, 10, 15 years. They kind of, they're there and then they kind of leave. A founder never leaves, right? I mean, it's still, it's, it, it, it's his company. It's always going to be his company. And so there's always that dynamic that plays into it. Um, but I think I understand that. And I think he and I work well together and, you know, I get him involved where it makes sense and where he wants to be involved. And, and if there's things that, you know, he doesn't want to be involved in, it, it works well. And, I, you know, and I can go and kind of do my own thing. And so we, I think it took us a little while to figure that out. That dynamic's a little tough, but I think we've, we've got a good uh, rhythm now and it's, it's working. Is it easier being family in that environment or harder? You know, I, I think it's probably both. I mean, I think that if somebody were to come in and they didn't have the family dynamic, 
it would be tougher in some sense because the founder would still be there and they would have, you know, there's a little bit more I can get away with in a sense, yeah. right? I can push back a little harder um, and where maybe somebody who was coming in off the street would maybe have a little bit harder time doing that. And, and he wants you to succeed. I mean, your family, you're, Absolutely. you're his oldest but, son. So. But, but then on the flip side, you know, the family dynamic also plays into it and that makes some difficult, I've worked there's for a difficult dad. piece like, as well. I, I, I mean, I've, I know exactly what you're talking about, a business that I uh, ran, but also he was funding. And it, it is certainly different having outside investors here changes the dynamic because there, there's less emotion in it, sure. right? Um, but you guys, you know, it's interesting sort of seeing the evolution. You took over in 2017. Um, the company did an IPO in 2018. Mm -hmm. Probably a really difficult, you went in and did the public offering. What became, and I don't think anyone uh, really realized, a, a much more difficult environment. You know, we had the trade policy issues that took place in, uh, you know, within weeks of the IPO. And then you had this sort of cyclical downturn in the trucking market. You took over in that moment in time. I'm wondering... How, what was that experience like for you personally as CEO, and what what have you learned from that? Yeah, I, you know, it, it was a it, it was a moment when we went through the IPO. The market seemed to be strong, robust. Things seemed going to be going well, and really, for all intents and purposes, it kind of fell off a cliff. Really, almost right off the backside of us going public. I mean, um, Trump and, did his tariff changes within weeks. Right. We idea. saw a big slowdown in the market, and then obviously rates started doing their thing through the back half of 18 and, and slowing down into 19. And so that was, uh, that, that made things a lot more difficult. We, we, as we went to IPO and really over the last couple of years, you know, there, there is a, there is an element of kind of a, a, a turnaround story and that we've got some things that were broken that had to be fixed. And, uh, we were in the process of fixing some of those things, um, and 18 made a lot of the things that we were doing a lot more difficult to continue, and uh, probably made it a lot more, it made it a lot harder for us to fully execute some of the things that we were trying to execute on the, in the back half of 18. And we did it in a public environment, right? So you do it with that big spotlight, everybody's watching you. They, you know, you, you have to publish your, your results every quarter, and it makes it a lot more difficult in some in some cases. Just in terms of disclosure to to the audience, I through my trust, have some equity in U.S. Express. So just in terms of disclosure, um, so I'm obviously have some vested interest in the success of the stock, um, but also at running a, a, you know, a media business and a, and a business reports in this industry, uh, there's a lot of, you know, I think anybody that was in 18 and 19 understands the difficulty of living through that in trucking. I mean, the, as an industry, in 2019, the entire industry lost money. Not every company, but as a, sure. on average, the yeah. entire industry lost money. Um, I'm wondering what, what was that experience uh, for you personally? I mean, this was the first set of quarters where you're, you're, the, you're the face of the company. Sure. You've taken over from the founder. How, was that, how did that experience sort of shape what you guys have now done? Yeah, I mean, the way we measure the, the market, I mean, 19 was actually worse than 2008, 2009 in a lot of cases. Um, in what and, respect? Well, just in, from the, the amount of pressure that we had from a rate perspective, you know, you had a little bit different dynamic in 08 and 09. It was purely economic. 
Um, but there wasn't outside factors, and I would say like a digital brokers and people that were aggressively coming into the market and pushing rates further than what we had seen in previous cycles. I think part of the, the 19, part of the story was there was an aggressive nature in the market that was pushing rates much further down than what you would have had absent that, right? I, I think that the, the economic uh, situation that we had in 19 in, in the industry didn't warrant some of the level of rate, rate uh, pressure that we saw. And I think some of that was driven by new entrants and things like that. And so I think it, it was just a different dynamic and it did put a lot of pressure uh, on us as a company um, at a time in which we were working on things, but it didn't quite have it all kind of put together. Um, and so, yeah, no, it was tough. I mean, it, you know, and, and you do that, like I said, in that spotlight, uh, and, and doing that where you have to have these analyst calls and, and you release your earnings and you're getting beat up. And, but, you know, we, we, we somewhat knew that going into it. Obviously, when you go public, you know that you're going to be out there in the spotlight and that's a part of it. We also consciously uh, made a pivot in late 2018 on our strategy. And part of that pivot, we realized, was not going to uh, was not going to bear fruit for probably anywhere from four to eight quarters. And we knew that there was going to be a, a period of that time where we were going to get probably beat up because it looked like maybe we weren't making the changes that uh, were expected by the market. And we knew that going in. And, and I remember myself and my CFO t talking to our strategy team in late 2018 and saying, here's our strategy. Here's how we're going to execute. But this is a six, eight quarter strategy. And for the next four to six quarters, we're not going to talk about it in, in a large scale. And it's going to be a part of we're going to have to, you know, we're going to we're going to take a little bit of pressure. But on the backside, it's going to be the right decision. It's going to set the company up for the long term. What was the strategy that you keep referring to? So the strategy was was our pivot towards a, a really a broad digitization of the company um, in a couple of cases. You know, I talked earlier about how we were able to make that transition with um, with working from home in a relatively short period of time. And part of that was a digitization of the entire company. So we went and, and found a, a new CIO, somebody who had been at organizations 10x larger than us um, and, and wanted somebody that understood how to really digitize an organization and digitize systems and, and, and really kind of get us into uh, you know, the modern era. And, and so we started working on that. At the same time, we started exploring what I would call is really a new business model or new idea uh, new approach to asset-based trucking. And it, and it really came out of uh, my exploration of the digital brokers in the back half of 2018 as I started looking at what risk did we have as a company with the digital brokers growing and expanding? And was there was there a concern that they could potentially take our market share and and those type of things? So as we started kind of exploring that, and I spent a lot of time in Silicon Valley, I spent a lot of time talking to a, a number of these startups. And the thing that became evident was they had some really interesting technology that they were applying to this business. Um, but... I felt like they were missing something. And what they were missing was that connection with the asset, right? There was a, they were missing that connection with the data that the asset provides that's somewhat limited on the broker side. And I really thought, 
as I was looking at it, that when you could take that level of technology that they were applying and, and the automation and the optimization and the approach and apply it to asset-based trucking, and it actually made more sense. And so we started exploring that as a concept, started building out the business model, um, and we had a, a group within the company that went through through really months of going in, locking ourselves in rooms, and kind of you know whiteboarding exactly what this is going to look like, what we need to look like, and the whole works. And uh, then in 2019, we went out looking for management to start building this concept. So this is known as Variant, which is, is your digital mm -hmm. fleet you describe it. Right. Um, and as I understand it, what you've done is you've taken the digital matching mm -hmm the quantitative uh, elements, and you basically have said, this is what the outside looking in, and, and so of course I know some of the, you know, being from the family, I know some of the, uh, the, the heirs of the fact that the solo OTR business has struggled, you expressed this historically, struggled with this over the road business, mm -hmm. really since uh, it's, you know, really the past 20 years. You basically said, I can't fix that. So rather than trying to fix it, yep. I'm gonna just start over. And, and you started with a whole new set of drivers. Like, right. explain a little bit about what that's, what, what, why did you go out and recruit a whole new driver pool, a whole new type of truck? Like, why would you, why not just take what you already had and, and implement it? In yeah, I mean, if you look at, we've been working on that. So it, really two thirds of the company is highly profitable. It's been highly profitable and successful for a long time. One third of the company, it has really been a big money loser and it's been that way for a long time. And we have thrown, I mean, you can go back as much as 15 plus years and you can look at, we have thrown every, every you know, kind of playbook at the problem. We brought in management from all these other different companies and we brought in people that were really, really smart and it doesn't seem to move the needle. And I kind of got to the point where I look, for whatever reason, whether it be culture, whether it be some sort of residual overhang in the business, whether it be systems, for some reason, we just can't fix it. And so instead of just continuing to throw everything against the wall to see what's going to stick, let's go do something different. Let's go, let's go do something radical and let's go rebuild it and uh, rebuild and not even just the, the actual operation, but the actual business model itself. And so, for, so our thought process was, let's rethink this. So we sat down, one of the things that we did is we sat down and said, what are all these paradigms that exist in the trucking industry? And we whiteboarded all these paradigms. And then the question I asked the group is, why? Why do we do these things? You know, why do we pay drivers by the mile? You know, and, and you really think about it. Well, we pay drivers by the mile. It, it, to me, it feels a little antiquated. And, and today, admittedly, invariant, we do pay drivers by the mile. So that isn't something we necessarily changed immediately. But there's, you know, but we really started to ask ourselves all these other things about these different types of paradigms. One of them was around uh, driver managers. Why do we have driver managers? And one of the things that our group said is, well, drivers are lonely and they want to be, they want to have somebody they can talk to. They're out there on the road, they're by themselves. And I said, you know, that's, that, you know, that's really, to me, it's a little insulting to say that a driver is out there on the road and they want to talk to somebody who is their supervisor or somebody they work with. Why don't we 
rethink this? Why don't we try to give them their time back so that they can somehow, we can, we can give them the tools so that they can spend time and have conversations with people they want to, like their family or their peers. And so one of the things that we really spent a lot of time on through this is not just the digitization of the load matching and those type of things, but also building out this robust social network so that the drivers can interact with each other and their families. And so we really spent a lot of time saying, we're not gonna have fleet managers, but what we are gonna have is this robust social network that exists within their application so that the drivers can interact with each other and they can interact with their families and that will help to, to minimize the, the necessary need of having to interact with somebody at the home office, which I thought was, was ridiculous on itself anyway. And, and that way, and we're seeing that, the drivers are getting more of their time back. They don't have to spend it on the phone with a fleet manager. They can spend it with their family or they can spend it you know, talking to some of the, the other people within the, you know, within the system. And we're seeing a lot of interaction between drivers and I think that's a good thing. So you've got a, effectively a digital infrastructure. You have mm -hmm. digital matching of capacity. You've got this uh, quantitative approach to the business. Something that you would, as you mentioned, you would expect to see in Silicon Valley, not in Chattanooga, Tennessee. Right. Um, but then you've done something that the digital brokers can't do, which is you have the ability to have forced dispatch. I, I imagine from an advantage for our utilization and even just service requirements, it's got to be an enormous edge over uh, an organization that has to essentially uh, incent capacity to come. Yeah, absolutely. If, if I look at the, the digital brokers, that, you know, they've got all this optimization, but the odds are their optimal choice one, two, or three may decide not to take those loads, right? Our optimal choice number one, we, we can make that match, and that driver always has to take that load. And so it does make a, a significant difference. We can really get optimized solutions on every load match and every load acceptance by, by having that ability to, with the way that we can manage our drivers. But why set up, a, here's what I, I still am not clear, why set up a whole new company or a whole new yep. operation inside of this? New trucks, sure. by the way, they're cool, they, they, I mean, they look good, but I'm curious, why not just take what the existing fleet and try to convert the existing drivers? Why yeah. would you essentially press restart sure. with a whole new population? Yeah, I think it's, it's two things. One, change management is really difficult. And so trying to get, even if we're layering in technology, there's a level of change manage management that's required from the driver's standpoint and from the office standpoint. And going in and telling people, oh, I need you to do something differently is really tough to, to make change when it's an existing operation that's in place and it has its own culture and kind of its own re residual for a long time, it's really hard to change that. And so we thought th this is such, such a different approach that instead of trying to, trying to force a legacy business to make this pivot, we could actually make the pivot easier by by um, you know starting something completely fresh. Secondly, with the brand, um, there's a lot, when you're in business for 35 years, there's a lot of good and bad reputation that happens. Um, and then with the driver, especially in an industry where you're 100% turnover, there's a lot of bad reputation that gets built over time too. And, and just like any carrier in America, go out and poll 100 drivers, you'll find a, a core group of drivers that said, I'll never go work for US Express for whatever reason. They worked there five years ago, they had a brother work there and he, you know something happened, but what have you. Um, 
And so we felt like this was so new and so different and we wanted to separate ourselves from that reputation and build it anew because we really felt like that it is something so unique that we didn't want to be we didn't want to be hung with that old reputation of that old legacy truckload carrier and we wanted to to really show how different it was and hopefully drivers would give us an opportunity to to, to actually experience that and see it for themselves. Do you think this helps shape your legacy if it's successful? I mean, I, I, mean I, I think for me, I really think about it more about just trying to drive the company in the direction that we need to drive it, and, and all that takes care of itself, right? I mean, we've, we've got to get this company profitable for the long term. We've, we want to be a carrier that is thought of in the upper tier uh, in the truckload industry. We want to be one of the leaders. We want to be one of the innovators, and we're, we're moving towards that. So you guys had this initiative, uh, you, you've added, you've grown your fleet size over the last year. Some of the analysts actually came out and attacked that as, uh, because you did it in, in a market at the time when you guys had expanded your fleet in Q1 in the first quarter, it appeared that the market was, was, was soft. You added it during a recessionary environment. Um, was that for variant? Were you adding those trucks to help uh, give you the ability to grow into this digital environment? In a sense, yes. I mean, if you think about the, the truckload model, you know, you've, you've got one-third fixed, two-third variable cost, and we had a certain infrastructure, and that infrastructure existed. If we were to take our truck count down, we would have to take down some of that infrastructure, some of that fixed cost. We needed that fixed cost to support our efforts into where we knew we were going over the next couple of quarters with this launch of this new brand. And so we weren't willing to take that infrastructure down. Um, we were in a situation where we could grow and, and the growth wasn't, you know, it was fairly incremental and small, but we were able to, to grow without increasing any infrastructure. So when you look at that, we look at the contribution margin of those additional trucks, it actually was positive without any additional infrastructure that had to be added. So at the moment, when we were able to find drivers and, and seat drivers and grow, it made sense for us to do so. Um, otherwise, we would have, you know, and, and I know some of the analysts said, oh, well, you need to take your truck count down, but that does require also taking infrastructure down, and that wasn't something we were comfortable doing at the time. I mean, it's uh, certainly this past quarter, when you guys released earnings, stock rallied because it was, I think, certainly beat expectations, but completely changed the way um, you and your business has been viewed in recent cycles, just the fact that you guys have made some correction. Mm -hmm. uh, Variant was uh, a large, referenced as a large part of that. I mean, do you think that's, uh, do you think it's, it's all about digital or are there other fundamental improvements to the business? Oh, there's, there's other fundamental improvements. I mean, it's uh, the management team. I mean, we're, we're finally gelling. We've been together now for at least a year and a half, two years, a lot of our, our uh, management team has, has been there at least for now, at least 12 months. So the team itself is gelling. We're working together. We kind of understand what needs to happen on a broader sense and, and everybody's executing. But the, the, the digital strategy has a lot, a lot to do with that. I mean, like we said, that, that legacy fleet of over 2,000 tractors 
was not fixable. And I mean, and, and I don't think even with the team that we have, we might have made some incremental improvements, but we weren't going to make any, any drastic improvements to it. So I think that, that just finally getting to that point and saying, hey, we're just going to stop fixing this and we're going to do something else, I think is part of the reason that we're seeing this change now. And the digital fleet, I mean, the metrics are something insane, like 500 basis point improvement for that particular fleet over the existing fleet, right? Well, as our utilization is about 20 to 25% better than the legacy okay. fleet, the comparable trucks. Um, turnover is, uh, has been reduced by 70%. Oh. Our safety stats are about 30% less uh, safety instances. Uh, per million miles for those trucks versus our legacy fleet. Also, our service is better. So, I mean, it, it's it's a better model. But why, but Eric, why is it that it's better? Why does it quantify better? Is it because the dispatch is mathematically uh, matched and, and executed, or is there some other secret sauce in there that's driving that? I think there's a lot of things. Um, it, it, but that, that optimization piece is, is just an element of it. I mean, we, we looked at the overall, the, the model, the traditional truckload model, and said all of these touch points, first off, are they even necessary? Or can we just automate them? And so one of the things that the drivers would tell you is there's just so much less friction and frustration because all of these touch points where they had to, in a traditional asset-based model, they had to call their dispatch or they had to do these certain things, we've automated a lot of that functionality. So things are very streamlined. That takes data, uh, you know, errors and data entry uh, away as well. And so it really streamlines a lot of the operation and we've done that really from cradle to grave. So all the way from the recruiting aspect all the way through to when a driver's onboarded and they're dispatched and they're picking up freight and delivering freight, all of that has been heavily automated and optimized. And so that really does take out a lot of what I think is the inefficiencies in the traditional truckload model. Did you set up a separate management team or a separate group to incubate this? Yeah, so we opened an office in Atlanta, Georgia, right across the interstate from Georgia Tech. And we went after uh, people with uh, doctorates in machine learning and deep analytics. And we, we hired some really smart people and essentially said, here's the idea go build it. We hired uh, Cameron Ramsdale from uh, Coyote Logistics to run it, but, but he had a team of you know, probably 10, 12 people, all really, really, really smart people. Most of them had never been in the industry. And we said, hey, here's the problem. Here's kind of the general idea and kind of let them kind of run with it. And yeah. that was the, the great thing is we didn't have a lot of, it has to be this way. Um, they really re thought outside the box and came up with some really new and innovative ideas. Occasionally, I had to pull them back and go, guys, that's not possible. There's certain things that you, know, that you do have to do as a, as a truckload carrier, but for the most part, we let them run. Now, I mean, big corporations have a notorious about screwing up innovation. How, did you basically tell, how did you keep your existing management team away from the business? Yeah. Did you basically say, don't screw it up? So, so it's funny, right in early 18, I read The Innovator's Dilemma. Yeah, I made huge. my entire management team read The Innovator's Dilemma, and, I, and that book really spoke to me. And um, the, the first thing we did was we opened that office in Atlanta and said, we're not, gonna, we're not building this in Chattanooga. Even if we could get the talent in Chattanooga, we weren't going to build it because I knew that Chattanooga would kill it. 
I knew the corporate office would kill it. I knew that even our executives would kill it because it's just human nature. It's, it was too different. It was too outside the box. Um, and so we wanted to, to build it separate. And everybody knows that this was kind of my baby. So I gave them kind of air coverage. And, uh, and really, Cameron had kind of the ability to go and build this thing without a lot of interference. And I think that's the reason we've been successful. Leighton Christensen, unfortunately, passed away. I don't know if you know. Yeah, yeah. But he is, uh, it's, it's been my Bible as well, um, sort of driven, uh, the innovators deliver. I, I think most Silicon Valley companies have done it. But he talks a lot about in the book about how big companies don't see the opportunity. They are pretty dismissive of any innovation that takes place because they break rules that don't that they don't think are big enough, and they slowly just weed away at at market share. I mean, do yeah. you think that's what trucking looks like today? Yeah, I, I would tell you, and and it kind of came out of this book too. Is I think one of the things, the reason that U.S. Express was able to do this, is we were a, we were one of those performers that wasn't, we weren't in the top tier, right? We've struggled from an overall performance standpoint. And if you look at over history, a lot of times the innovation that comes from incumbent companies doesn't typically come from the top tier companies because they're not willing to cannibalize their existing business in order to completely make these broad, dramatic changes in their business and their operations. And we were willing to do that. We were willing to take this legacy business and say, I'm willing to completely give up on it and go and start this completely new idea and this new business model. And, and unfortunately, it almost has to be a company that, that's struggling to an extent that is willing to make that, that bet. Somebody that's, that's one of the top tier uh, companies in our industry is never going to make that bet because it, it's, not worth, you know, it's not worth the risk. Um, and so I think that was one of the, the positions we were in that actually made this possible for us and put us in a position to do so. You know, J.B. Hunt did this 20 years ago, not digit. Well, now they've done the three series. Sure. Oh, yeah. But a lot of, you know, back in the 90s, J.B. Hunt struggled with their solo OTR fleet uh, and, and really went after intermodal, and people thought they were nuts. And now we, we know how, how massive Hunt is, and they've built a culture of innovation. Yep. Um, as well with their 360 app. Now, they're doing it from, from freight brokers. You guys are really doing it from the truckload asset side. Mm -hmm. How do you, I mean, you, you think about Moat, because we, going out and raising yep. venture capital and talk to a lot of VCs, every VC worries about how protectable is the idea. How do you think about others potentially creating these digital experiences, sure. digital fleets, um, and, and is it more, is there bigger chance that's gonna happen from a, a, an asset-based carrier that's already an incumbent? Or do you think it's going to happen from a, a random upstart out of the valley? Yeah, I, I mean, if you look at the asset-based business model and all the capital that's required, I think that I would be really surprised to see a startup go that direction. I think it's really hard for a startup to get that kind of capital that would be required to buy tractors and trailers and, and everything that's needed. Um, that's why you see you know, most of the investment from venture capital is in the third-party side. Um, so it likely... If we see somebody do this on a large scale, it's probably going to come from an incumbent company. But I can tell you that it, it, it takes a while. It, it, I mean, we've been working on this for two years. We just launched it, right? So it isn't something that happens overnight. Um, and it does take a really probably the CEO 
owning it and saying we're going to do it, running interference, like you said, because otherwise the business will kill it. And it also takes somebody that's willing to accept that success may mean cannibalization of their legacy business. And I think that's also a tough pill to swallow. So I think that uh, it, I, th I feel like it's fairly protectable. I do think that some of our peers are leveraging some really interesting technology into their legacy business. And I think that they will make some incremental improvement because of that. Um, but I don't know that anyone is going to make as drastic a change as we have, at least probably not for the foreseeable future. Now, how do you answer someone that says this is just market conditions? You've benefited from a strong sort of COVID recovery, V-shaped recovery. Is that, uh, I mean, do you fundamentally believe that the, the success of your business is driven by the innovations and sort of this new cohesive management experience? You know, it is because I still have this legacy business over here that I'm comparing to it every single day. And I see the, the results. The legacy business is still operating at the same level. It's been operating for a number of years. And this other business is over here out producing it every single day. And, and that's really, I mean, we've seen these statistics all the way back to our pilot fleet in uh, Q3, Q4 of 19. So it, we're seeing the same level of, of performance. And so I don't feel like it has anything to do with now, you know, you get some headwinds on some of the cost items and stuff from an overall corporate standpoint, but the actual performance of the fleet is, it has nothing to do with COVID. So you've got a sample size and able to- Yeah, hey, we're, we're, we're almost 500 trucks now in this division and, you know, day in, day out, it's outperforming our legacy fleet. It's not even close. And over the next couple of years, is it gonna replace the full solo OTR fleet? Yeah, so we announced, so we talked about, we had 2,100 trucks that were underperforming. Um, our intention is to move those 2,100 trucks to, to more uh, better performing areas, meaning digital fleet, dedicated, uh, other, uh, you know, a few other areas that we're making uh, decent returns in. But so we've now moved 500 into the digital. So we have 1,600 trucks today, I guess, that are underperforming that over the next four to eight quarters, we will be moving those driver, moving those trucks over. Um, the tough part is, since we need to go and source drivers externally because the drivers inside US Express don't necessarily match with the, the model for a multitude of reasons, we're having to go out and source drivers externally. And that's really kind of the, the headwind that we have um, and being able to switch all these trucks over into this Just uh, to recruit operation. the drivers that are gonna work. We have to recruit the drivers, operate. we have to find drivers that meet, work with the model. And they have to change the way they operate. Is there some expectations? They do, I mean, it's uh, a, it, it, there's a whole lot less hand-holding. It's a lot more of drivers that are self-starters that want to, that want to be, that don't want to have to have that connection with the fleet manager. And there's a lot of drivers that like having a fleet manager and somebody to talk to and interact with. And so it's a, it, it is a different, it takes a different type of driver and a different mentality. And it, it is very much, it's, it's, it's a driver that's much more comfortable in that, you know, Twitter, Facebook, Yelp world that's going to probably migrate this to one that maybe isn't so comfortable with technology. Someone, someone who's perhaps uh, more adaptable in a tech, sort of a tech world than, than you would get with yeah. a, uh, some of the uh, drivers that may not be comfortable with some of the technology. Yeah, and some of the, the drivers that aren't comfortable with it could still do well with it, but the real benefit of everything we've built is somebody that really understands how to interact with that technology is where the drivers can get the most benefit from. Is it, it the same pay per mile, or is there a different pay? It's the same pay per mile, but, for the but most it's, part. it's the ability to get more miles with less headaches. Yeah, we're, we're getting a lot more miles, yeah. Got mm -hmm. it. That's awesome. Well, Eric, congratulations. I 
big fan of what you're doing personally uh, and, and congratulate you on your success. Love to see technology. It's going to be interesting to see how a digital fleet operates with forced dispatch and taking the advantages of the Silicon Valley digital matching, uh, uh, digital brokerage businesses and apply it in a forced dispatch environment. It's also going to see how uh, the overall industry evolves, um, yeah. e either emulating or um, potentially uh, innovating their, themselves and their operations. So yep. congratulations on your success um, and thanks for coming on Full Speed Ahead. Great. It's thanks. Been a treat. Thanks for having me.